RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by Mint Mobile. Cut your wireless bill to as little as 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 343, The Sword of Kalos. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm John Champion. Each week on Mission Log, we explore the meandering caves of Star Trek, ducking into darkened rooms and blowing off the cobwebs to reveal the morals, meanings, and messages of every Star Trek episode ever. This week, The Sword of Kalis, where the living legend and Dahar Master Kor returns with a quest to find the one, I mean, the sword of Kalis, one sword to rule them all. Well, at least Corrin Worf. I'll unearth some legendary trivia for you in a moment, but first, Norman, please let our audience know how to contact us. If you would like to share your epic tales of honor and glory with us, please contact us at these subspace frequencies. Mission Log Pod is where you can find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, please call us at 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. And our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And remember, we may use your legendary stories on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. But before we embark on this most epic of quests, John has some trivia that will shake the very foundations of legend in a way never before heard by the ears of mortal beings. Or at least you, our listeners. Hey, it's trivia for the Sword of Kales. The story is by Richard Dennis, so that name may not ring a bell right away, but Richard had a short contract with Star Trek as a story editor. He did get some story credits, though. On DS9, other than today's show, he wrote the teleplay for Battle Lines. And over on TNG, he gets the writer credit for Deja Q and Booby Trap. What, what was the last one? I, I didn't hear you correctly. Could you speak up, please? Oh, I, I just said uh, uh, Deja Q and Booby Trap. Okay, that's what I thought. It, Deja Q. You said Deja yeah, Q, and, right? Oh, uh, no, I said Deja Q, Q and uh, Booby Trap. Okay. Did you catch Did you catch Booby Trap? I did, but I was I was really more concerned with Deja Q being a family show. Oh, sure. Okay. Yeah, I just didn't want anybody to miss that he wrote Booby Trap. Okay. Okay. Uh, the teleplay for The Sword of Kales is by Hans Beimler, longtime producer and writer with Star Trek. Now, Hans got his start during TNG's first season, and he eventually made the jump over to DS9. We're still pretty early in his contributions to the show. The only prior DS9 script of his that we discussed was Paradise in Season 2, but he goes on to write many, many more through the show's run. This was directed by LeVar Burton. Hey, no introduction necessary there. Our own Geordie LaForge. LeVar directed two episodes of TNG, learning the directing ropes like many of his actor colleagues there. He'll be with us for a total of 10 DS9 episodes behind the camera. The previous one that we just discussed was Indiscretion. Now, I don't usually point out the music in the episodes that we discuss. There are excellent resources and podcasts out there to take a deep dive into the scores. 
I happen to really like the score to this episode, though, and wanted to point out David Bell, who composed it. This was only the fifth score for DS9 that he wrote, and uh, he stuck around to do much more on that show, on Voyager and on Enterprise. David is from Ohio, but for the last several years, he has worked in musical theater as a director and composer and racked up a huge number of nominations and wins from the Jeff Awards in Chicago, so shout out to the Chicago theater scene. Also, a shout-out to a friend of our show and longtime Trek contributor Dan Curry. He's the man behind a lot of the martial arts that you've seen on Trek and a lot of the stylized weaponry. He designed the Batleth, the Mechleth, and here he gets credit for the Sword of Kalos prop, though with some contribution by relative newcomer on the show, John Eves. John did some sketch work, and ultimately Dan finished and then fully realized the piece that we see on screen. Can I jump in here and talk about the Kalis sword for I a moment? I would love it if you did. I really love the aesthetic of that weapon. As a <laughs> Batleth, that's what I I believe would be the most aggressive and violent version oh. of that sword. Especially yeah. that that center triangular, very effective thrusting point. Uh, the pokey part. The pokey part, yes. That's, that's what they. That's what the Klingons. That is a pokey part with honor. Yes, you stick them with that pointy end. <laughs> All right, that's that's the correct direction for it. Now let's talk about guest stars. So early on, we meet a Lethian who uses his electrical mind reading powers on Core. Uh, he is played by Tom Morga, someone we've mentioned before as a stunt performer who got his start with the franchise way back on the motion picture. And he even stands in for Jonathan Frakes in some of Riker's more physically demanding scenes on TNG. Toral from the House of Duras, geez, I, I thought we had seen the last of them, is played here by Rick Pascolone. And note that in Redemption on Next Gen, uh, that same character is played by J.D. Cullum. Uh, Rick here has done a little bit of everything since his start in the business in the early 90s. In addition to TV appearances, he has done a ton of voice work in animation and video games. This is his only Trek appearance. Oh, oh, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't point out that he does show up in an episode of Love Boat, The Next Wave. Finally, the return of Kor, the classic Trek Klingon from Errand of Mercy, who we last saw in DS9 Season 2 Blood Oath, Played here again by the great John Colicos. We've discussed his career before and some of those standout roles, which for me will always include Baltar on the original Battlestar Galactica. You may also have seen him in the 1981 film The Postman Always Rings Twice. Sadly, we lost John in 2000 at the age of 71. Now on to the story recap for this week's episode, by your command. Prologue. Surrounded by a captive audience at Quark's sits Kor, the legendary Klingon Dahar Master, who is holding court with a grand retelling of his, Kang's, and Koloth's legendary blood-soaked battle against the forces of Tanag. As his story comes to a somewhat unceremonious end, Kor raises his hand triumphantly as Dax jests at Kor's colorful interpretation of history, as only an old friend can. As the crowd disperses, Dax finds Worf sitting alone and offers to introduce him to Kor, 
Worf refuses, reminding her that he is still considered an outcast by most Klingons. To his chagrin, Dax introduces Worf to Kor anyway. Calling Worf a traitor, a pariah, and the lowest of the low, and after some very intense glaring, Kor extends his hand and tells Worf that any enemy of Gowron and the High Council is a friend of his. As Worf recounts stories of Kor's renown, including a confrontation with one James T. Kirk on Organia, Kor proclaims his past exploits will pale in comparison to what he is about to achieve. He reveals that he is on a quest to find the most revered artifact in Klingon history, the Sword of Kalis. Worf volunteers to aid Kor's quest because he knows that this artifact would usher in a new age for the Klingon Empire. Ever the pragmatist, Dax reminds them that they have to find it first. Kor unveils an ancient shroud that may hold clues to prove that the sword is genuine. Dax wants to fully analyze the shroud, but only after sobering up from this evening's blood wine fueled excitement, advising Kor and Worf to do the same. Much later that evening, Kor stumbles back to his quarters and is felled by an assailant who touches Kor's forehead and commands him to open his mind. Act 1. The next morning, Dax finds Kor groggy and grumbling on the floor. Kor blames Quark's replicated blood wine for his current condition. Or maybe it was the bottle of Uridian brandy he and Worf shared to toast their quest. Speaking of which, Dax has analyzed the shroud and discovered DNA from both Klingon and Herc species. But more importantly, Dax found traces of metallic fragments from a batliff, one that is 1,400 years old. Tending to his grooming needs in his quarters, Dax and Worf brief Captain Sisko on Kor's quest for the Sword of Kalis. Kor revealed that the shroud that he had Dax analyze came from a Vulcan mining expedition in the Gamma Quadrant, which accidentally unearthed ancient Klingon ruins on an uncharted planet. And when Kor realized the significance of the Herc markings on the shroud, he coaxed it away from them through his influence as their ambassador. Worf explained that the Herc, meaning outsiders in Klingon, invaded their homeworld 1,000 years ago, took what they wanted, including the Sword of Kalis, and destroyed what was left. Returning the sword to the Klingon people would begin a new era of Klingon prosperity, and Sisko is savvy enough to realize that Starfleet's involvement would pay dividends in repairing Federation and Klingon relations. Sisko blesses their quest in the form of the runabout Rio Grande. Approaching the wormhole, Kor pauses to bear witness to this historical moment, one that will become a part of their own legendary stories. Delving further towards their destination in the Gamma Quadrant, Kor emerges from resting and regales Worf and Dax of a magnificent dream he had of them returning the Sword of Kalis to the Emperor in the Hall of Heroes as the statues of his fallen brothers Kang and Koloth came alive to be with Kor once again. Upon reaching the planet, and using the detailed Vulcan mining schematics as their guide, Kor leads the party to what was once the Herc Central Museum. Dax and Worf essentially pick the museum's force field locks, and the three enter the chamber. But to their shock and disappointment, the chamber was ransacked and is empty. Act 2. Dax, Worf, and especially Kor lament their discovery, and Kor admits that finding the Sword of Kalis was his last chance for glory. Worf discovers that a layer of dust is being strangely repelled from a nearby wall. It seems that a second force field is being camouflaged by a holographic projection. Surmising that this antechamber is being protected by a sensor that only senses Herc life signs, 
Dax modulates her tricorder to trick the sensor into believing that they are Herc, allowing all of them to pass through the hologram once the force field is down, unharmed, and come face to face with the object of their quest, the legendary sword of Kalis. Dax's tricorder confirms the age of the artifact as Worf stands awestruck with wonder. Worf reaches out to wield it, but steps aside to let Kor hoist it first from its stand as a sign of respect to the elder Dehar Master. They leave the chamber only to be intercepted by Taral, son of Duras, flanked by several well-armed Klingons and an unidentified alien, one who Taral hired to learn about every detail Kor knew about the sword. Taral wants the sword to become emperor himself, which by default would also restore his family's honor and seat on the high council. Feigning surrender, Kor, Worf, and Dax fight their way free of Taral and his guards, trapping them behind the reactivated force fields for the time being. Finding safety in the network of underground caverns, the trio catches their breath and Dax tends to a deep gash Worf suffered in the melee. A Klingon jamming device prevents them from contacting the Rio Grande for transport out, so they head towards the surface. Kor presses Worf about why he didn't kill Terrell, claiming his right of vengeance. Worf told Kor that Terrell was only a boy, but Kor only sees this as weakness. Worf, in turn, blames Kor for being a drunken old braggart, which tipped off Terrell to send the Lethian after Kor in the first place. Dax tries to keep the peace between them, but senses a growing hostility in Kor. Clutching the sword of Kalis tightly, Kor further doubts Worf's loyalties, especially those which define what it is to be a true Klingon. Act 3 Stalking their way through the caves, and in precise tactical formation, they kill what appears to be, well, lunch. As they feast on what Kor has now exaggerated from killing a decently sized rat into the slaying of a monstrous beast, the ever-so-humorless wharf chastises Kor's braggadocio and bombast, and how Kor is disrespecting the Sword of Kalis. Worf proclaims that it is a sacred relic that must be treated with the highest respect and not used as a tool for shoveling food into one's mouth. Kor paints Worf as a naive idealist who believes that the Sword of Kalis would give the Emperor the power to unite the people against Galron. Kor believes that the sword can only be held by a true Klingon, one who was forged in the heat of battle and pure of heart like Kang, like Koloth. And Worf completes Kor's thought, someone like you? After breaking camp, they continue making their way to the surface as Dax tends to Worf's wound, while Kor finds another beast to slay for supper. Worf tells Dax that when he was younger, Kalis came to him in a vision. Kalis told Worf that he was destined for something that no Klingon has ever done. At first, Worf thought it was to be the first Klingon to join Starfleet, but now, with eyes full of zeal, Worf truly believes that Kalis' spirit flows through him and that he should claim the sword to lead the Klingon people to glory. Growing concerned by this revelation, Dax now understands Worf's true intentions for the sword, as does Kor, who has been eavesdropping perhaps the entire time. Act 4. Believing they are making their way closer to the surface, our weary travelers come across a chasm with only a very treacherous and narrow ledge leading the way to a safer crossing. Kor suddenly loses his footing and falls, only to be caught by Worf gripping one end of the sword as Kor dangles from the other. Worf urges Kor to let go and drop onto a ledge below, but the increasingly paranoid Kor would rather die with the sword in his hands than risk it to Worf's keeping. Pulling up Kor from the edge and making it to safety, 
Cora and Worf are about to kill each other for possession of the sword as Dax forces both of them to give it to her as she is the only one who is thinking clearly and trying to get them all out of the caves alive. Plagued with exhaustion, distrust, and paranoia, Worf and Kor never release each other from their sight, while Dax clutches the sword in one hand and readies her phaser with the other and tries to trust them both enough to try and get some sleep. Act 5 Dax is jarred awake by Worf and Kor threatening each other like never before, Their tensions boil over furiously as they draw their blades and clash with murderous intent. However, the combatants are soon interrupted by disruptor fire. It seems that Taral and his forces have hunted them down and have given chase. In the chaos, Dax drops the sword as she and Worf head for cover. As Taral closes in, Kor picks up the sword and crying out with a warrior's fury, he charges his enemies, with Worf following right behind his childhood hero into battle. With blades drawn and with the power of the sword fueling their blood rage, Worf and Kor dispatch their attackers, only to turn on each other in one final death struggle for possession of the Batleth that just moments ago led them to victory. With their hands choking the life out of each other, Dax only has one option left, and she points her phaser and stuns Worf. Not wanting to hear any more from the Dehar Master either, she stuns Kor as well, finally ending their senseless fighting and getting all of them back to the runabout. With the sword secured on the Rio Grande, Worf and Kor both now understand that the power of the Sword of Kalos is too powerful and too influential to hand over to the Emperor as it may divide their people as easily as it did the two of them, driving them to nearly killing each other for its power. Kor still believes that they were destined to find it, but knows that no one single Klingon was meant to keep it as they beam it out into space believing that when it is destined to be found again, it will be. The end. Uh, Norman, you get a uh, plus three on Mission Log for using the word melee in your, uh, in your recap. I understand melee actually quite well, as I have been a part of many of them as my bruises and <laughs> separated shoulder Many attest. a melee. Yes. Uh, well, well done. Well used. Some say melee, some say malay. Yeah, you know, both are acceptable. Whatever side of the fence that you land on, yeah. This episode is really fun. And I've said this before, I've been waiting for an episode to be a little bit just more on the the not-so-serialized side (laughs) and fun side. And at the beginning, I love how not only is Core like telling this grandiose story, probably stretched out (laughs) to the nth degree of, of certain truths, but... I like how the chief is sitting back. Like everyone's like, mm, yeah, sure, that happened. And she's like, it's a good story. Or, yeah. And he's telling it well. You know, it, right? it goes back to my theory on Next Gen about how uh, a lot of the people that we meet in the 24th century don't know a good party uh, if it bit them in the behind. Uh, the chief does. Mm-hmm. The chief's like, this is a great story. I, I want to sit down and, and have a drink with this guy and listen to what he has to say, you know? Everybody else is like, oh, well, that's not 100% true, and uh, I don't know what to make of this guy. No, just listen to him. He's a good storyteller. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it beats just, you know, being on duty or, you know, throwing darts or, you know, challenging, you know, Julian <laughs> to a, a match of racquetball that he'll, right. you know, he's going to lose. <laughs> right, yeah. So, uh, John, you know, one of the things that I that I thought was interesting is is, is core – kind of like the cool rock star uncle that you admire as a kid because he bought mm. you beer 
But now, as you see him in your adult life, he's kind of disappointing that he's not really that cool and he's kind of like a drunken old Yeah, fop. that's sort of... I mean, obviously, uh, Worf has his political reasons to keep some distance. But yeah, it's a little bit like that, too. I think that is a very apt description of uh, the embarrassment that he might feel on many, on many levels. And, and while we're talking about that, I, I did actually... I kind of hated how Dax ignores Worf's discomfort about meeting Kor because <laughs> he has every reason to not want to be a part of that. And then Dax comes over and says, totally. hey, let me introduce you to Corey. He's like, uh, no, that would be a bad idea because I'm an outcast and um, th- th- this is completely wrong on so many levels. Cool. Hey, Cor, come over here and meet this guy. Like, no, like, there's not, there's not even any acknowledgement. Like, I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm sure it'll be cool. I'll be here to help you. You know, like nothing like that at all. I think the combination of blood wine and probably a little bit of Curzon coming yeah, to the surface. Yeah, totally. You know, because they were all friends. Now, Curzon, Kor, Kang, and Koloth. Oh, yeah. is going on there, even though Curzon's yeah. with the C. It's like an episode yeah. of Highlander. But yeah, I think I think that's just like, ah, you know, forget about it. It's it's core. <laughs> my drinking buddy. Yeah. Right? He's gonna yeah. be cool, right? Yeah, maybe not. But he is. Not so much. Yeah. yeah. But he is. Yeah, you're right. He is. I also love uh, for all of the original series fans out there that when war starts kind of recounting, you know, Core's, you know, his renown in, in the stories of ages past. He goes right for Aaron yes. of Mercy at the very beginning. Yes. And I think a lot of original series fans, like we are, we just remember when he kind of strides in there and then he submits Spock to the mind ripper and, you know, he likes pushing Kirk. You do not like to be pushed. <laughs> He's so know? good. And, and just goes, it goes there. And I said this to you before, John Colicos just wears coarse skin so yeah. naturally. He slips into that character with or without rich yes. forehead. Yes, he is awesome in that. Hey, I want to uh, change subjects here a little bit, talk about some hardware. Uh, I dig that little shaver that Cisco has, and I did not realize apparently we had seen it before when Jordy was using it in Code of Honor. Now, Norman, I forgive you and all of our listeners who may have blocked that, uh, at least most of that episode, from their memories. But at the top of Act 4, Data stops by Geordi's quarters to tell a joke, uh, but they have a talk about how the perfect shaver that Data fine-tuned was too perfect. Sometimes humans need things that are imperfect. Aw, next gen. You're so adorable. Thank you, John, yeah. for... Thank you, John, for advertising the 24th century Shave Club. Yeah, hey, they're both members of the the Shave Club for Men. (laughs) Oh, and uh, Cisco had this very uh, Q-like line where uh, uh, Dax and Worf go to ask to use a runabout, and he's like, well, you can uh, take the Rio Grande, and I bring it back in one piece, 007. You know, it was a very much one of those things. Oh, I also thought it was an interesting little historical detail here that the Klingons got defeated more than a thousand years ago, and apparently something that was just a horrible, horrible defeat, uh, because everything we know about the Klingons, they're just sort of built from the ground up. They have evolved as this warrior race, but not a thousand years ago. It did not go so well for them, and I feel like maybe this informs something about their quote-unquote monoculture, even though we we see cracks in that, uh, maybe they're still nursing some wounds of that embarrassment. And uh, nobody's going to forget what happened a thousand years ago. Well, that's an actually really interesting point, because when you think about it, before the monoculture, the mono-warrior culture that the Klingons are known for, before the Herc invaded and raised Kronos, 
what if they had this really diverse society of mm. poets and artists and scientists? And there are examples throughout Star Trek that illustrate that there are more to Klingons than just being yeah. warriors. I mean, there are really intelligent scientists and lawyers and even Worf in Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. Worf's grandfather, who was also Worf. Oh, uh, yeah. Well, the, the lawyer. Yeah. Yeah, 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 the lawyer. Yeah, yeah. Worf, father yeah. of Moog, right. father of Worf. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it's very well possible that the atrocities that they suffered at the, at the hands mm-hmm. of the Herc just basically said, "You know what? Never again." And we're just going to go straight out warrior cast yeah. because I don't, I don't remember ever hearing about the Herc before this episode. I'm no Klingon expert, but I've seen enough Star Trek to know that I haven't seen that yeah. reference. No, the, this is the first reference to the Herc, not the last, uh, but it is the first reference to the Herc. By the way, uh, I like uh, what you said, the hands of the Herc. That sounds like it should be a novel, definitely. Uh, maybe a short film and also just a Herc-a-Durk-a-Durk-a-Durk-a. That's, you know, <laughs> I would say that. Yeah. And I love that, they, okay, they find the sort of Kalas. Here it is. It's this priceless, important artifact, more than a thousand years old. Yeah, let's pass it around. Everybody touch it. <laughs> Everybody play it. With, yeah, w- without white gloves or right, some type of right. you know, protective We're gear. all just going to play with this thing. But good fight scenes in this episode, and, and right away using the sword of Kalas, but um, you know, not particularly elaborate fight scenes, but, but some good, intense short ones there. I'm surprised, though, you can have any sort of a fight at all with a Batleth that doesn't involve just some sort of mild dismemberment. As a as a martial yes. artist, as, as someone who studied European martial arts and swords and bladed weapons of varying degrees, the Sword of Kalis is literally like the best version mm. of that weapon because it has that, I, I mentioned this before, it has that center right. spike that when, usually when, when Klingons kind of do that the bash move where they, they would bash you with the center yeah. of that weapon and it would just basically be like a steel rod hitting yeah. you in the forehead. This thing would eliminate yes. you from yeah. history. Yeah. <laughs> they would hit you so hard you would turn into vapor. I mean, that thing is so violent looking. And maybe that's why Kalis was able to unite the Empire under a far more effective weapon than <laughs> that's what they're true. using. That's true. Hey, I, I, I've got the sword. I guess I'm in charge now. Mm-hmm. Great continuation in this of Dax's storyline. You know, her blood oath, literally from the episode Blood Oath uh, with the Klingons, her ability to fight like a Klingon. We got a little taste of that when Worf came on board. They they give her depth constantly, and they still just make her cool. I already liked mm-hmm. the Dax character, uh, but they really just heavily relied on her being the scientist. You know, she she fills the role that a Spock or a Data or somebody would fill, although the exploration of humanity is more about the, the Odo side of this. But when you need somebody to give you an answer from wisdom and experience, you go to Dax. But now we're getting, just in these last few episodes, we're getting so much more out of her that I find really fascinating. In those fight scenes, do you think it's Dax's training, Curzon's understanding of Klingon martial arts, or a combination of Well, yeah, of I both? think that's what's so cool. It's the combination of all of the above that makes her special. Uh, I think that's awesome. You know, we would be remiss to not point out the delicious meal that was uh, appropriated by the yes, uh, rat with spikes on it, uh, large rat with spikes on it. I'm going to say it. It looked like and probably tastes like chicken. Although to Dax, some rancid, terrible 
awful chicken. You know, in, in that scene, what did you think of when when Kor just kind of threw shade at Worf? Like, you know, <laughs> we have to make these tales long and grand, or else your entry of the story would be like, oh, and, and then here Worf comes shows Worf. up. <laughs> I love wow. that. I love that moment. Oh, right? because, I, well, again, it's, it's, everything fired on all cylinders with Kor. His delivery is great. His mm-hmm. lines were great. Yeah, he, he was wonderful. By the way, with Kor, I don't know if you noticed this, but there, when Dax is fed up and, and uh, Kor and Worf are fighting and she just pulls the phaser on him because she has to, Worf, well, not, not Worf, Kor, or the stuntman playing Kor at that point, does a little like a Scooby-Doo kick with his legs when he, when he goes flying back. That was... Uh, a way to make core even more adorable. As we slice through the sort of Kalos, I'm certain that we will also get to the core of core. We'll get back to the sort of Kalos in a moment. But first, a word from Mint Mobile. Hey, if you're still using one of the big wireless providers, oh, you have to take a step back and ask you what you're doing with your life. (laughs) I mean, you just have to ask yourself what it is that you're paying for. Here's the deal. Big wireless providers, we all know them by name, they are charging you for their expensive retail stores, the hidden fees, everything that they are taking advantage of with you, the customer, because they know that you will pay. So if you're like a responsible budgetary person, as we all should be, this is where Mint Mobile comes in. Mint Mobile provides you the same premium network coverage you're used to, but at a fraction of the cost because everything is online. Mint Mobile saves on retail locations and overhead, then passes those savings directly to you. Now, I've been talking about Mint Mobile for a long time now on Mission Log, and I want to focus on something that I really like, and and that specifically is the experience of setting up the account and deciding what you want. I mentioned the problem of going into stores. Not only are you paying for the privilege of going into that store, uh, but on Mint Mobile, I see all my options in front of me online, and I choose what I want, no more, no less. I get to be in control of it. Setting up that account is a snap, and every plan that you can choose comes with unlimited nationwide talk and text. And then I'm just looking at a data plan, maybe 3, maybe 8, maybe 12 gigabytes of 4G LTE data. And the best part is, you keep your phone, you keep your number, and you keep more of your money. So to get your new wireless plan, starting at 15 bucks a month, and get that plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com slash missionlog. That's mintmobile.com slash missionlog. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash mission log. And a big thanks to Mint Mobile for sponsoring this week's show. Norman, you said early how much you love uh, John Colicos as core in this. And I, I feel like clearly that will be a big focus on our discussion and, and how we wrap it up. There's something else that I really appreciate about Kor's personality and John Colicos inhabiting that, and that is his his earnestness and his sense of adventure. Because the whole thing here, for people who are watching this and are already sort of invested in the fantasy of Star Trek, this is like a big game of D&D, or more specifically what speaks to me, it's like an Indiana Jones adventure. I mean, really, you can substitute whatever you want in there. But there is just a huge amount of excitement and anticipation. It almost doesn't matter what the quest is. It's just that he's going to do it. Now, I know that it's important what he's going after, 
But honestly, they could have written anything. What you need is the actor. You need the character there to sell it. Here he is who who has probably lived out his greatest battles, but he's going to do one more thing. And it's a joy to see. In many respects, I think that this is... This is Core's continuation of of where his character has gone, say, with Blood Oath and will be going with this quest and further along the road if ever we see him again. Because, again, I have not seen Deep Space Nine past mm-hmm. this point. So this is Core's story. And in large part, the success of this entire episode hinges solely on his performance because as original series fans— we know that core from Errand of Mercy. We know that he was the governor of Organia. We know that he was ruthless. We know that he put Spock under the knife in a way. We know that he pushes Kirk's buttons. This is what we learn about Klingons at the very beginning of their relationship with us as the audience. So seeing him now, seeing him in his far, far lesser years of glory and legend, it's almost sweet to see him try and rally himself one more time for this great quest and to bring people that are younger and enthusiastic to help him. And when they say quest, it automatically snaps you into a certain pattern where you're thinking, okay, you're right. This is like a Dungeons and Dragons type episode. This is like a Tolkien-esque quest where you have this band of merry men and they have this goal to reach because whatever they find at the end of this quest is going to be monumental and world-changing and it's going to be grand and the stories afterwards are going to forge legends that's exactly the spirit of this episode that i feel and i have to believe that a lot of that comes from john colicos Well, and you hit on something uh, in that description that also resonated with me. There was this kind of sadness, uh, and and not in a dour, depressing way, but this sweet way to watch him dream for and strive for this glory, this thing that he's done so much— but there's still this one other thing out there, and this might be the last one, but but this is the big fish, and he's got to go for it. The, there's this sense of finality, and, and we, the audience, are thinking like, well, okay, he's, it's probably not going to happen the way that he thinks it'll happen. He's not just going to magically reunite the Empire and and you know, Gowron's gone and everything will, you know, be the happily ever, uh, happily ever after ending that, that we're hoping for. But it, he, he personalizes this so much. And I think in some way, because he keeps mentioning that he wishes that Kang and Koloth were with him, that when they died in Blood Oath doing the one thing that they all swore to do together— I think that he felt cheated of that glorious death Mm. in battle. And now he's looking for something to atone for the sheer fact that he's alive, that he didn't die with his, with his brothers, with his comrades, with those two that he forged legend with that forged the history of the Klingon empire. It's something that can't get taken away from him, but here he is, all of his friends are gone and what's left. Yeah. Well, there's something to that, right? That, you know, the idea of death being more difficult for the people who have to carry on. You know, and and he does have to carry on, and he's sort of uh, a man without a country at this point. Let's talk about the importance of the artifact, because I sort of want to build a case for the unimportance of the artifact. 
<laughs> you know, it, it is the sort of KLS is the stand in for whatever you want it to be. Am I right? Well, it's like in, in Raiders of the Lost Ark, it's the Lost Ark of the Covenant that holds the Ten Commandments or like Indiana Jones says, he's I think he's more along the sides of of where you are now in this, this particular discussion. Uh, Indiana Jones says, whatever, I don't care, you know, fire, God, power, mm-hmm. whatever, I don't care. You know, it's like, you, you hired me to do a job, I'll do a job. You know, that or the the cross of Coronado or the Holy Grail, the true cross that the, the Crusaders believed that they were carrying across Acre and the Holy Crusades in Jerusalem. Yeah. All of these are just symbols. Yeah. And you're right, it could have been anything. But I, I think that not just for core was the sort of Kalis important, but it was also for Worf because... What we're dealing with now are two completely different ways of romanticizing what this means. Yeah. You know, for Kor, it's one thing, but for Worf, it's a completely other thing because he's seen kind of like the devolution of the Klingon Empire and how it's falling into, I wouldn't say like despair or ruin, but it is in decline. And the sort of Kalis he believes in and of itself as the artifact will bring them to this completely new era of the Empire. But it's just a hunk of metal. Right, right. Really. Well, and, and what you're describing is what I think is so interesting, you know, particularly. So I'm a big fan of the Indiana Jones movies, all three of them. And. <laughs> I oh, saw what you oh did. sorry. Was that a little. Oh, I, yeah. Um, I did that. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, what I always thought was interesting about those is that, as you put, the, the artifacts themselves actually don't have a value it's all about what those people bring to them so you know if it's the ark of the covenant uh of course to india it's the the quest to go find this thing before the nazis do when the nazis open it they they pervert it into this idea of power and that ultimately is their undoing is the shakar stones no it's just, it's the meaning that the village gives to those it's not about indy having a thing to then go parade around the world and show off and Fortune, fortune and glory, and glory kid. Fortune and, glory. Uh, and, and even with the Holy Grail, it, it was about the journey, the story of India and his father. It's not about the cup. And we actually, it's interesting, we have another uh, artifact in this episode. Uh, we start out with the shroud. Um, and and mm-hmm. I thought that was an interesting way to introduce us to that because immediately my head, and I'm sure that a lot of other people's went to the, the shroud of Turin, you know, that you can look at this and go like, oh, okay, well, it had or has meaning to people because of what they're bringing to it. But in reality, it's a forgery. It's well done. Um, it is old, but it was built to serve a metaphoric purpose. And then, and it's really truly about what people bring to it that actually has any meaning. Much like John Borman's Excalibur, there was the the motif of when Arthur reclaimed the sword, that the sword and the king would bring the land to prosperity again. You know, one land, one sword, one king. And it wasn't necessarily the sword itself. It was it was Arthur and his attitude towards being the king that the people needed that brought England back to a, a level of prosperity and growth and promise. So when you put all of your faith into this literally inanimate mm-hmm. object, a sword or a cup or a box made of acacia wood <laughs> that was in a movie covered with gold, <laughs> I don't know why, but these relics— like Indiana Jones said, if actually, let me rephrase that, that Marcus Brody mm-hmm. said, an army that has the Ark 
before it is invincible because it's not that the icon or the relic makes them invincible. It's their yes. belief that makes them invincible. Yeah. And whatever catalyst that is, is dangerous yeah. in a and, way. And that's why I think it's so interesting that we, we still do this. And, and as a person who I, I like to look at the world through what I hope is a, a rational lens, I realize that we all still have these things that we believe in that sort of, it might be the inanimate object that, that gives us uh, a motivation. And I, I ask myself, are those things really necessary at all? You know, where where's the lesson in that? It, it's almost like, you know, it's kind of like the parable of stone soup. You know, the, the, the stone in the soup, the stone to start the soup is meaningless. It is valueless. You can't eat it. It's only when people come together, rally around it to bring what they bring to it that you actually have the ability to cook a meal, to feed yourselves and feed each other. And, and I think that there's a, there's a good side and a bad side to that. The good side is that, yes, if you can motivate people to do things beyond uh, sort of their self-imposed limits, that's great. The bad thing is that I, I sort of feel like I always try to come down on the side of what actually is truth with a capital T, that that object, that thing doesn't actually have power. It doesn't have this intrinsic value. It is purely something that you could do on your own. You know, you could actually achieve these things on your own. You're just deciding to put this value and this power behind this object to tell you that you can do it. You know, so what, what's more important here is the story, not, not the artifact and not even the quote-unquote truth of the event. You know, what, what did Kales do with this? But, but just sort of the truth of the story. What, what is the, the lesson that you get out of the story? Kors says it. Kors like, it's a sword. I'm, I'm going to kill people mm -hmm. with it. I'm going to eat my nasty rat chicken with it. It's just a hunk of metal. But right. he realizes that it still has enough meaning to others that you will exploit it given a chance. That's the unfortunate part. Well, bringing up Indiana Jones again, because there's a lot of that's informing this episode. There's a scene at the very end of Last Crusade where Ilsa's trying to reach for the Holy Grail, and she's, she has, she's dangling from one arm, and Indy says, you know, Ilsa, give me your other hand, honey, I can't hold you. And she's looking at the Grail, which is on a ledge, literally like inches away from her fingertips, and her belief in thinking that if she reaches it, she can do something, whatever she needs to do with it. But it's that greed that causes her to fall. And then almost in turn, the ledge gives way and Indiana Jones is in the exact same spot. And he's reaching for it as Ilsa was doing. And his father just says, let it yeah. go. And that's the only time he ever Indiana. called him. Yeah. Indiana. He goes, Indiana, let it go. Because it, the cup doesn't mean anything. Yeah. Man, I... Right. It, Norman, see, here's what you did. You you now brought up the heartbreak that I have had since 1989 that Elsa Schneider was a bad guy. Yeah, that's been very hard for me to live with since then. So uh, thanks for just uh, rubbing that back in. You think Elsa was bad? Yeah, Dr. Schneider, she turned on Indy. She, she, she was had her a, opportunity for redemption. <laughs> she was a zealot of archaeology. <laughs> she was in with the wrong crowd. I can't abide by that. Uh, now, look, I... I don't also agree with the Klingon idea. They mention it here that only the battle-hardened warriors can be leaders. Uh, but I do like the idea of 
purging the government of those who are self-serving. So it's interesting, you know, we're sort of meant to align here with Worf and Kor as enemies of Gowron. You know, it's been pointed out to us, Gowron's failings. And of course, we're siding with Worf anyway. But, you know, kind of the whole problem here with the Klingon system is that it is set up for strongman after strongman. That, that's just what it does. And thank goodness that, you know, as we mentioned before, we have seen examples of breaking up the monoculture of just warrior after warrior after warrior. There are Klingon priests. There are outsiders like Worf. But they all fall back on this no true Klingon fallacy. You know, and Kor even says, well, no true Klingon <laughs> would, would do this. Or, no, or maybe it's Worf who says it, actually. But it was so interesting to me that Worf, when he's having this moment with Dax, he, he says he, meaning Kalos, wants me to have it. He wants me to lead. And there, my friends, is the problem with deciding things based on revelation, because it's ultimately your head telling you what it is that you want to hear, which then is purely subject to your own interpretation. There's a big problem with that without some uh, outside verification or outside process to sort of correct that when somebody comes along and decides, oh, well, this is mine because it's mine because I told myself that it's mine. Well, it kind of plays into a little bit of the joke that I said earlier on in this episode where Kor and his party, this quest, and again, we laced this with very Tolkien-esque sentiments that they were searching for the one mm -hmm. ring. Because that's kind of what the Sword of Kalos was was doing to both Worf and Kor. It was it was allowing them to direct their true intent into this artifact, this inanimate object. And when you really think about it, there's this one scene that I love in the movie and in the book where Gandalf and Bilbo are vying for the one ring when he finally realizes when Gandalf finally realizes that Bilbo has the one ring. Sauron's one ring and let's take this scene and swap out Gandalf for Dax and Bilbo for Kor and in, you can see how this realistically plays out in this episode if it ever came down mm -hmm. to this so Dax says I think you should leave the sword behind Kor is that so hard and Kor says well no and yes now it comes to it I don't feel like parting with it it's mine I found it it came to me. And Dax says, there's no need to get angry. And Kor says, what if I'm angry? It's your fault. It's mine, my own, my precious. <laughs> and Dax says, precious. It's been called that before, but not by you. Ark, right, what business is that of yours? What I do with my own things? And Dax says, I think you've had that sword quite long enough. And Kor says, you want it for yourself. And Dax says, you know, Kor, son of Reinar, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help yeah. you. Yeah. Thematically, yeah. that is the scene with not just with Dax and Kor, but with Dax and Worf. Yeah. Because the one sword is corrupting them with absolute power that is allowing them to manifest their deepest, darkest desires. Which is a little disturbing to see because, it, it, you know, Worf, who has been nothing but... Uh, look, he may be misguided, he may be confused about some things, but his honor is dear and important to him, and yet he becomes so 
sort of blinded by this ambition and and he is willing to morally compromise himself uh, because of the the promise of power and and just to be clear you know it's not something special about this sword but what I think is is disturbing and interesting and understandable about this from this kind of reactionary human lens that we look at this through yeah people do that all the time see the opportunity for a power grab see the opportunity to have one up on somebody else and look we get to use the excuse of this mystical object to exert that power one sword to rule them all one sword to find them one sword to bring them all and in the darkness bind them Sword of Kales, the microphone of podcasting, the end of our show. <laughs> Norman, as is the tradition, when we have completed our quest, we get to the end and we get to talk about, oh, well, whether or not the whole thing stands up and what we learn from today's episode. So I, I think I know how you're going to land on this episode, but why don't you tell us in, uh, in great detail and make it an epic story about whether or not this episode holds up the sword of Kales. Well, John, after my 107th time watching this episode, I'm just kidding, 106th <laughs> time. You know, I don't see any real red flags in this episode that doesn't make it enjoyable to watch from any production standpoint, performance standpoint. As a matter of fact, I think it's the performances that really sell this episode. It's a really fun story. But it does kind of draw from the, the fandoms of the action-adventure serials like Indiana Jones, Alan Quartermain, things of that nature. Ooh, good call. Yeah. Thank you. I thought you would appreciate that. Mm -hmm. But for me, and I think for you also, is the, the real standout of this episode and, and his contribution to this episode can't be understated is John Colicos. Because as original series fans, there is a bittersweetness when we see where his character has ended up from when he started. John Colicos's core in the original series, Errand of Mercy, is the blueprint for what I believe Klingons should have been built upon. He was not, a, not he was just treacherous and, or, or he was brutal, but he was intelligent. You know, he was methodical. He was educated. He was everything that you wanted in the antithesis and the enemy of somebody like James T. Kirk. But now he is just this exhausted, drunken, foppish, and besotted with his own voice and his own storytelling. And he wants that one last shot, that one last uh, opportunity to enter Stovacor and be with his brothers. Because I believe in the end, everything that he's doing from this point on is because he he missed the opportunity to die in a glorious battle with Kang and Koloth. And I think that that's really eating away at him. And you can feel that. Him yeah. drinking more, him being just, just surrounded in this fog of despair and, and his own kind of withdrawn self-awareness. You know, it's, yeah. it's very, very, it's touching to see because Colicos plays it so well. But that's why I think this episode holds up is because you get to see the end of his career or the near end of his career from where he came from. And 
we all see this happen with various stages of people that we care about, like the drunken uncle that I mentioned before. <laughs> so I get a yeah. lot, I get a lot of value out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't really disagree with anything there. I mean, it, in the end, like you said, it, it's an Indiana Jones story. And instead of the Ark of the Covenant being hidden in a warehouse, the sort of Kalos is beamed into space in a sort of poetic way. Uh, it's just good. It's fun. It gives us quality time with Worf and with an old friend. And the the depths to which they've developed that character is just so, like, comforting yet exciting to see on screen. Uh, because, again, John Colicos can't say it enough. He's just so good. There's nothing really heavy about this episode, but it's just solid. It's just a very straightforward, well-told story, and it's sort of a nice break from the types of stories that we typically get on DS9, with DS9 sort of building its own mythology and, and being in the weeds with Cardassians and Bajorans and the Dominion and the Founders and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. This is a nice standalone that honestly could have worked on Next Gen. If you had decided to tell the story with that cast, obviously still focusing on Worf, but, you know, you, you could have done that there. Probably would have been just as effective, but I'm glad we got it here. Uh, I'm, I'm glad we got it here to kind of break up what we've had, but also reintroduce some continuity into what we have. So, yeah, it's just solid. It's just very good, and, and it really grew on me the more that I watched it. I only saw it 104 times. I didn't quite hit your... Uh, you know, your level there. <laughs> You've bring dishonor to this podcast. <laughs> Constantly on a weekly basis. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, I, I think that there are messages here. At least there are some interesting ideas for us to wrap our heads around. I mean, just sort of in, in a very simple and fun way. Uh, you could say that for core, the lesson is if you want to keep a secret, don't tell anybody. Um, we learned that early on. Uh, for Worf, hey, loosen up, man. Just, just tell a good story. It's okay. I always wonder about Worf because we spend more time with him than any 24th century character at all. The amount of time that he's on Next Gen, he's in the Next Gen movies, he's on DS9, a lot of screen time for Worf. And it feels like we are still trying to figure out, or Worf is still trying to figure out what makes him Worf and how much can he be quote unquote himself if he can even really define that, you know? So it's tough, but, it, you know, other characters develop more quickly, like where you're talking about Jadzia, or even Kira has gone through many changes in the first uh, few seasons of DS9. I would also say that kind of on the bigger level here, the things that I get out of this episode, the stories that we tell are important, but at the same time, they shouldn't dictate your life because those stories are always up for interpretation, misunderstanding, and being driven by self-interest. It's particularly difficult when those stories then start to merge into situations uh, that have to do with, well, political power, structure, religion and belief. You know, those stories take on new meanings. And it was interesting to me that, you know, in the last few episodes, you've, you've used this word that I... I typically stay away from, which is faith. 
uh, and it's a word that I, you know, again, I don't typically use because it's so loaded. And you have to be, I feel like when you use faith, you have to be very specific about how you mean it in a particular context. And in this case, Worf and Kor put their faith into a holy object. You know, it's all about this object and all the meaning that they can bring to it. They have invested in this object. And and that is def- defined by the sacred stories of their sacred leader. And it's a disaster. <laughs> the only way that we avoided a complete and total meltdown of the Klingon Empire is that at least they had the sense to just get rid of it and realize it's about us. It's about what we do. It's not about this object. I hope they learned it. I hope they internalized that. Because I'll, I'll go back to the stories we were talking about in the last segment. You know, it, it's really just about when people decide we can do things for ourselves, we can exceed our limits. If we're not just saying like, oh, well, well, it, it only has to do with when we allow ourselves with this one particular object, this one particular story, this one particular force, do we then allow ourselves to grow? I want to see good things for both Kor and Worf here. Maybe they both learned this in this episode. What else? What else uh, do we pick up from uh, from this episode, well, Norman? It's interesting that you bring that up, John, because when we when we write our notes, sometimes we don't get a chance to glance at at our feedback. And what you said ties directly into what I want to say, because oh. if you replace this object, this this vessel for people, in this case, for Core and for Worf to put their, their desires into and for, to give them direction and to give them meaning and purpose, let's replace that entire model with the word fandom. Mm. When I was watching this for the 120th time, (laughs) (laughs) but seriously, when I was watching this over and over and over again, the one thing that kept coming back to me was, is there such a thing as Klingon gatekeeping? Mm. Because what Kor was saying to Worf is that if you're not a true Klingon, you cannot possess the sword. You do not have the value set that I have as a true Klingon that was forged by blood, by war, by honor, by glory, by loyalty. You don't understand what those traits really mean because you weren't there. You weren't there at the beginning. And when I say the beginning, I mean in fandom terms, you weren't there in 1966 on September 8th. You right. weren't there for the pilot of the man trap. You weren't there for 1979's theatrical premiere for the motion picture. You weren't there when Norm was crying as a 10-year-old boy in Oberlin, Ohio, <laughs> watching the, the Wrath of Khan, right? Yeah, yeah. That's what Kor's getting at. And what Worf is saying is that I understand all that, but I appreciate it even far more than you because I can go back to the wealth of knowledge that you have plus the prosperity of the fandom that will come because you're so locked into being such a curmudgeon about it that you can't see the, the future, the romantic notion of where it's going to go. And that's fandom. That's cultural, yeah. uh, the cultural dichotomy of what we're faced with today. Well, any of our listeners who haven't heard of the no true Scotsman fallacy, you know, go look it up because you can apply it to 
the uh, religion or politics or in this case fandom or 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 any group that wants to have an in-group and an out-group which is all groups <laughs> pretty much <laughs> yeah but it's a sort of self-imposed purity test mm-hmm. for who gets to be a part of it or not and, and it, it really it it falls apart the more you argue it and yet people still rely on it to try to argue with it right and I, I just wanted to bring that up because when I saw both Kor and Worf using the sword as an excuse to say, I'm in the right, no, I'm in the right, no, I'm older, no, I'm more progressive, there's no right to that. The right really should be focused on what this object can do to bring a better understanding to our people, which is a point that is being completely missed by the both of them. And they're abusing their understanding of their own histories and missing the entirety of the point of what the sword truly means and what it stood for when it first united the Klingon Empire. Because the sword doesn't talk to anybody. Sword doesn't have a voice. It doesn't. It's the people who talk about it who have a voice. It's literally even dull if somebody doesn't sharpen it. Right. 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 Um, So that's one thing that I'd like for the listeners to chew on. The other thing is that should you really meet your heroes? Hmm. Because, as I said before, Worf has this generalized version of what he believes Core is. And then there is the reality of who he learns Core to be. And Worf saw Core as this legend that stood toe-to-toe with James Tiberius Kirk in the Battle of Organia and establishing one of the greatest treaties of all time between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. And now he's just this drunken old fool who spouts anything at a whim and causes everybody to find some type of trouble. But we do this in entertainment. We do this in sports. We do this in all of our fandoms where we place our hopes and our desires on these celebrities who, when we meet them in real life, never really live up to our expectations, nor should they. They are just people, right? And to, to summarize all of this, I want to put this particular scene in everyone's head And it's not the get a life scene from William Shatner from the 1986 Saturday Night Live (laughs) skit, which is obviously amazing. Well, for some. But it's when Tim Allen as Jason Nesmith, as Captain Peter Quincy Taggart, said to to Brandon where he says, it's just a television show. okay? that's all. And Brandon says, well, we're wondering what about the quantum flux? If you just listen. And he says, there is no quantum flux. There is no auxiliary. There is no gosh darn ship you got it and to that i say john never give up never surrender mission log is produced by roddenberry entertainment executive producer rod roddenberry you can find all of our shows at the roddenberry podcast network podcast.roddenberry.com not just mission log but mission log live women of war priority one the trek files your daily star trek news and shabam shabam if you'd like to support Mission Log directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog. For more Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, our man Bashir. You say potato, I say potato. You say sword, I say batleth with an extra pointy bit that will ruin someone's day. Let's call the whole thing off. transmission.
podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.